Hello, this is Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. This is Jacques Hebert, and I'm sad to say that my partner in crime, Simone Malaz, is again traveling to uh, raise awareness across the country for coastal restoration in Louisiana. Today, she is on the other side of the Mississippi River, up in Minnesota, attending a conference there. So we miss her, but it has been a very busy news day for the coast and for the coastal master plan. In fact, earlier today, the Senate Natural Resources Committee heard the master plan and they approved it, sending it to the full Senate floor for a vote, after which point it will then go to the House. So um, I want to remind everyone there's still a lot of time to go and go to MississippiRiverDelta.org and take action. Tell your legislators that you support the master plan, give them feedback, and we'll keep you posted as the master plan continues to move through the legislature. But I'm really excited as much as I miss Simone. I have a great group of guests with me today, team of journalists who are at the forefront literally of covering Louisiana's land loss crisis. Some of these journalists working on the coastal and environmental team for the Times-Picayune, and these include Mark Schlefstein, Sarah Sneath, and Tristan Barrick. In January of this year, the Times-Picayune announced it was creating or expanding a Louisiana coastal reporting team dedicated to in-depth coverage of the state's ongoing devastating land loss. Teams led by Mark Schlefstein and news editor Drew Broach. It'll include contributions from outdoor reporter Todd Masson and photographer videographer Ted Jackson. So obviously Louisiana's land loss crisis is urgent and severe and there are many, many important angles to uh, cover a story as dynamic as changes in Louisiana's coast over time. So I'm very excited to have the group here with me today, particularly the first guest I'm going to be speaking to, Mark Schlefstein. So Mark, you've been with the Times-Picayune for over 30 years. Um, You've covered this particular beat probably longer than anyone else, winning three Pulitzer Prizes prizes with colleagues in the process. I think in terms of expertise and knowledge on this issue, you kind of are a, a league above everyone else. So what has it been like for you to follow this story, um, the story of Louisiana's coast, over such a long period of time? Well, it's really has been an education for me. Um, it, it's sort of like a continuing college course. Uh, every day I come in and find out that I'm learning something new about what is happening to the coast and uh, about what we can do to try to, uh, to change some of the things that have been happening. So if you had to take a step back today to kind of see where we are as it relates to our land loss crisis and the efforts we're trying to undertake um, at the state level and other levels to address it, how would you define this current moment in time? We are uh, we, we're on the precipice of beginning the process of attempting to uh, reduce the amount of damage on the coast. That's, that's really where we are. Uh, we've gone beyond the process of identifying what the problems are and beyond the process of trying to figure out key ways of trying to respond to it. Now we're at that point where we know what we need to do. We do actually have some money. Uh, You know, the silver lining to the very black cloud of BP has been that uh, the state's got at least $10 billion that it knows what to do with for the first 15 years of the master plan process moving forward from today. And so the state's already begin, uh, begun uh, building some of those projects and, and uh, knows what it can do and is learning fairly quickly about how to monitor these things and figure out what works and what doesn't as they move forward. All right. So we're kind of in a critical moment, kind of midway through this, pro- I guess. The, we haven't necessarily solved it and it's not getting any better uh 
we're, we're at the beginning of the restoration stage, okay. really, really in the early stages of that. So I want to talk about a piece, you know, in 2008, Brian Stelter, who was still with the New York Times at the time, called you a prophet of Katrina's wrath. Um, he was pointing to a story you published in 2002, essentially predicting what would happen if Louisiana were hit by a major hurricane. Of course, as we all know too well, three years later, Hurricane Katrina did happen with many of the effects that you described. So would you say, I guess today, I mean, we all know how, you know, the what we went through with Katrina and how terrible it was. And 10 years ago, I mean... Would you say New Orleans and the surrounding areas are better prepared today if we were hit with another storm like Katrina? We're, we're most certainly better prepared. Um, we, we have a new levee system around the metropolitan New Orleans area that's going to protect us from a 100-year a quote-unquote event, which is really a, a storm surge created by a hurricane that has a 1% chance of occurring in any year. That is uh, that that's a dramatic improvement, especially because it takes into account modern knowledge of what kinds of hurricanes can occur in the Gulf of Mexico and modern knowledge about how to build levees and uh, structures to protect us. However, it's, it's still not enough, and, and everybody is aware of that. The reality is that that levee system protects our, our property and not our lives, and so we are still going to have to evacuate in advance of, of many storms, even some Category 1 storms. We're probably going to have to evacuate from the area because these levees, the, uh, the new ones even, can still be overtopped by uh, storm surge. Uh, that's, you know, that, that remains one of the problems with this system is that the system, uh, I, I call it a devil's bargain, uh, is built to the standards uh, set for insurance by the National Flood Insurance Program, which is that, quote, 100-year storm, which is not really a 100-year storm. There's a 35% chance of that occurring within the lifetime of your 30-year mortgage. That's wow. a better way of looking at it. Wow. And, I mean, obviously, as we approach the beginning of hurricane season, those realities become all too clear. And when we talk about multiple lines of defense, I mean, the last but possibly most important line of defense is evacuation. Absolutely. And uh, we continue to need to upgrade what we're doing about evacuation. In the aftermath of Katrina, there were major changes nationally in what is required and what is allowed, uh, including actually taking into account the fact that a lot of people don't leave because uh, they have animals, they have pets. And so now the the plans actually call for uh, air-conditioned trucks to, to be provided to take uh, animals to shelters outside the area as well. But the, the, the problem is that we need to make sure that those plans are in place every single year. And, and it's not just our elected officials who need to do that. We as citizens need to do that to make sure that our elected officials are on the ball and haven't let any dro balls drop like they did before Katrina, where there was a similar plan in place and uh, the, uh, the city of New Orleans school system went bankrupt and that sort of canceled it because the, there was no way of getting the, the school bus drivers to be assured of being there to drive people out. Absolutely. And um, I'm sure we'll hear more about that, particularly as June 1st approaches and, you know, really the measures that you can take um, to kind of protect yourself, protect your family. 
um, and staying informed about, you know, evacuation resources. Um, shifting back a little bit to coastal restoration, in 2007, you published a series called Last Chance that analyzed the importance of taking timely action to address our land loss crisis. Ten years later, how would you characterize what's been done? Again, getting back to the, this is the beginning of the process, really. Uh, we are very late in getting the beginning of this process started. Um, the the state ha- has done some of these uh projects where they've had pipelines and uh, pumped uh, material out to start building wetlands and have has created land which is a good thing but the big projects the you know the the sediment diversion projects that would be built that then can in perpetuity continue to provide access to the sediment that the river carries uh, we're, we're still five or six years away from the completion of those projects, if that early, and, and that remains a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, it, it's getting late. Um, the, the other problem is uh, that, that I see is that e- even in 2007 when we did that series, um, the, the amount of sea level rise that we were looking at then is not as much as, uh, as you can expect to see, and we're now a lot closer to 2010, I mean to, uh, to 2100. So we're going to have to look at how that sea level rise is going to happen during the rest of this century. Absolutely. And a lot of kind of what has happened in that time as it relates to sea level rise and, um, you know, the plans for the future as it relates to sediment diversion are somewhat tied up in what's happening now with the 2017 master plan and then moving that forward. Um, I want to ask for your assessment about that after the break. Um, And I also want to talk a little bit more about this uh, newly expanded coastal reporting team and actually, uh, you know, interview and and introduce to our audience um, some of your new reporters. I know you're probably really excited to have them on board. Sure am. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for listening. This is Jacques Hebert and this is Delta Dispatches. I'm here with Mark Schlefstein and the rest of the coastal and environmental reporting team from the Times-Picayune. We will be with you back uh, after the break. Hi, I'm Don Cheadle. Listen up. I want to talk to you about something important, the Environmental Defense Fund. EDF isn't like some of the other environmental groups. EDF works together with those on both sides of the issue. Despite all the fighting in Washington, EDF has found ways for both parties to support real progress. That has made our air and water cleaner and the products in our homes safer. So not only can our planet prosper, so can our future. Go to edf.org to see how you can help. National Wildlife Federation gives voices to the wildlife conservation values that are part of our country's heritage. We are charting a new course for wildlife that our children and grandchildren will thank us for. Visit our website, nwf.org Louisiana, to find out more about our work to restore and protect coastal Louisiana for generations to come. National Wildlife Federation, uniting all Americans to ensure wildlife thrive in a rapidly changing world. nwf.org Louisiana. At Audubon, we believe that where birds thrive, people prosper. Nowhere is that more evident than in Louisiana. Integrating science, education, and policy, Audubon, Louisiana's mission is to conserve and restore natural ecosystems, focusing on birds, other wildlife, and their habitats, 
for the benefit of humanity and the Earth's biological diversity. Visit la.audubon.org to learn more and support our mission. la.audubon.org. Restore a Retreat is a coastal nonprofit organization working in the heart of the Barataria and Terrebonne Basins, from the Mississippi River to the Atchafalaya. We work every day to restore Louisiana's coast community and culture with our mission of implementing long-term and large-scale projects for our irreplaceable region. We'll hope you join us in supporting the solution. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and online at www.restoreorretreat.org. Hello, you're listening to Delta Dispatches. This is Jacques Hebert, and I'm back with uh, veteran journalist Mark Slefstein, as well as Tristan Barak and Sarah Sneath. They comprise the Times-Picayune Coastal Reporting Team. Um, and I wanted to introduce Tristan and Sarah to our audiences. But first, Mark, can you tell us a little bit about the Coastal Reporting Team, why it was formed, and what readers can expect to see from you all in the months and years ahead? Well, sure. Um, the, the, the reason the team was formed is because we are uh, on the precipice of, of trying to put into place what I call the world's largest environmental experiment. Uh, using all this money from the BP oil spill that the state's going to get $10 billion just for the state. And there's a huge amount of money out there for, for um, the other states of the Gulf Coast, for other, other projects along the Gulf Coast. And in doing that, we felt that there was a need for us to expand our coverage. And so uh, we, we had the opportunity through the Society of Environmental Journalists, a, a, a group that represents... Uh, uh, environment reporting um, nationwide and around the world to be able to get a grant to uh, fund uh, two two reporting positions for uh, what we hope will be for three years to help us do that. Uh, and SEJ's uh, grant money comes from the Walton Family Foundation. Great. And I mean, obviously, we, we've explored this on our show already, but there are so many angles to this story and to um, something as dynamic as Louisiana's coasts and the efforts to restore it. I mean, economic, human, environmental, you know, wildlife, the list goes on and on. So let's hear directly from um, one of the new members of your team, uh, Sarah Sneath. Welcome to Delta Dispatches, Sarah. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about your background um, and why you were interested in moving you know, down. I guess you were originally from Kansas and then you were in Texas most recently. So tell us about your background and what interested you in this position and coming down to Louisiana to cover this story. Sure. Um, I think what got me in, interested in environmental journalism from the get-go is the fact that I am from Kansas and my grandparents went through the, um, the, the Dust Bowl. And so environmental degradation is something that I can relate to personally because of their stories. And when I was in college, I double majored in sociology and I was taking one of these environmental sociology courses. And, uh, and in doing so, I realized that, you know, environmental stories are like you kind of just hit on their um, public health, their, you know, infrastructure, their... They, they have to do with environmental injustices, like environmental racism. So there's a lot going on there, and there's a lot to talk about, and I'm all I'm interested in it all. Well, yeah, and I know you've been really busy. I mean, I've been following your coverage, and you've been, you know, reporting on everything from the state's annual plan, non-structural projects, um, you know, highlighting how fur trappers are being affected by climate change, as well as a really fascinating and beautifully photographed piece about um, a Cambodian fishing community in Beerus. Um, so what have been some of your favorite stories that you've covered so far? 
Right. That story uh, that I did about the Cambodian um, fishermen and women uh, and viewers definitely is among them and, and the fur trappers as well. It's amazing the diversity that we have on the Louisiana coast and each person in each community is dealing with this problem differently and it hits them and it affects them in a different way and the way that they adapt to it is different. And I think that I, those are the kind of stories I want to continue telling moving forward is how it, how it affects each of these communities in a different way. And also, you know, we talk about how what Louisiana has to lose or what stands to lose in, in, uh, as far as infrastructure or as far as, you know, this football field every hour. But we also have a lot of cultural reasons, you know, cultural things that we could lose as well. And I'm interested with that community in particular, um, what did you find in terms of how either they're adapting or how are they handling the challenges that have been put upon them? That's a tough question. <laughs> Um, I mean, I guess they're doing it by, they're, they're really community focused. And I think that's one thing that I, I'm learning more and more is that these people are coming together and they're having these conversations as a community. And that's not, you know, just like uh, in the story, I wrote about how they had built this Buddhist temple and they'd done it originally with a FEMA tarp, which to wow. me is pretty crazy, you know, that they would, that they would come together in order to in order to create something really beautiful out of something that's really, you know, the, the hurricane, uh, you know, obviously took a lot away from them and yet they're, they're so willing to rebuild with what little they have. Yeah. And it's amazing to see those stories of kind of resilience and community strength and, you know, the reliance on the land and the coast, you know, across the board. And so there's certainly no shortage of, of those stories for you to explore. I know. I know previously you worked at the Victoria Advocate, is that correct? In Victoria, Texas, covering environmental issues. How is it different being in New Orleans and covering kind of what's going on here compared to Victoria, Texas? Right. Well, I mean, there are a couple of similarities. You see some of the same birds and the weather's much the same. It's hot. And there are cockroaches, which I'm not a fan <laughs> of. <laughs> um, it's the small ones you got to worry about. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, I, I'm really frustrated that my dog just, he doesn't realize the how bad they are and that he needs to attack them you know <laughs> he, he'll attack flies house flies but not cockroaches he thinks they're his friend or something oh, no. <laughs> um but as far as uh differences i mean i think again i think um in texas you know one of the one of the leading environmental issues that have that's that's occurring there is um you know drought issues with drought and you know, they got out of drought in like 2012 or 11, you know, around that time frame, maybe 2012 or 13. And at that point, whenever the drought passed, you know, then it's kind of the sense of immediacy left. And I don't see that happening here. It seems like even though Hurricane Katrina happened more than a decade ago now, the sense of immediacy is there and it's, and it's there for everyone. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, not only because of hurricanes, but because of how bad kind of this land loss crisis is and how vulnerable we are, we're constantly living on the precipice of, of a threat, right? And so I'm curious beyond kind of our enormous and prolific uh, insect uh, <laughs> community, what have you found most surprising um, since you've been here working on the coastal beat? I mean, again, it's, it's just, again, just the sense of urgency and how everybody wants to tell that story. They want, they are a part of that story. They acknowledge that they're a part of that story. They're very much wanting to have their voice heard and I think that that's, you know, what we're here for. 
Great. So I know um, you went on a coastal flyover yesterday, kind of over New Orleans, as well as um, down the river, seeing kind of both the land loss and as well as restoration that's happened. Can you tell us a little bit about what that experience was like? Did you learn anything new? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that experience was amazing. Um, I think that, like, when you look at a map, you know that New Orleans is really close to the coast. But, like, I've driven to Buras, and it takes a long time. You know, driving to some of these coastal communities takes a little bit of time. And, um, well, not a lot, you know, like an hour, which by Texas standards isn't much, by the way. <laughs> but but I think it, it showed, like, how really this is one big system and how what, like, a levy what a levy, what happens with a levy if someone builds a levy how it affects the whole system you can really tell that it's it's all interconnected right you see the pieces and how they fit together and how important each piece is um so we're about to head into a break but first please tell our listeners all the details of where they can follow you where they can get their your, your reporting twitter handle all of that oh thanks uh yeah um at sarah sneath is my twitter handle and uh, nola.com is where you can find all of our stories Great. Well, we are here with the amazing coastal reporting team at the Times-Picayune. You're listening to Delta Dispatches, and we'll be right back after the break. And we're back. This is Jacques Hebert, and you're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. Um, today, we're lucky to be joined by the new coast, Louisiana coastal reporting team from the Times-Picayune. Earlier, we spoke with veteran journalist Mark Schlefstein, as well as Sarah Sneath. And now, uh, last but certainly not least, we're excited to work- welcome to the show Tristan Barrick. Welcome, Tristan. Thanks. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm from uh, Bremerton, Washington, and uh, I've been, for the last uh, 10 years, uh, working for my kind of hometown newspaper, uh, most recently covering environment and outdoors. Great. And, um, you know, you, as you mentioned, you were at the Kitsap Sun in Washington. Um, Maybe other than the cockroaches, what has the transition to South Louisiana been like for you? Um, It's... It's actually been surprisingly smooth. The people here are really friendly. I mean, as, as soon as we moved into um, our new house, we had uh, like five or six neighbors coming out of their house and welcoming us. So it's it's been actually really smooth. Great. And, you know, we're not quite at the, the, the height of the summer heat yet. So you've still got that to prepare for. Yeah, we I think we came at the perfect time. Like it, uh, the the way springs are here, it's a lot like, uh, summers in Washington, and uh, everybody's really warning us that you know it's going to get a lot worse, and <laughs> we may want to move. Well, once you make it through one summer, you can make it through all, hopefully. And uh, air conditioning is always a, a, a friend. Um, so you've been also you've also been really busy in your new role, covering everything from this invasive insect that's uh, destroying Rosia cane in the Birdsfoot Delta to sediment diversions to subsidence. Um, to um, how restoration has benefited birds. We went out to Elmer's Island recently mm-hmm. and saw that directly. Um, so what have been some of your uh, favorite stories that you've covered so far? And, and you won't offend me if you don't say the uh, Audubon Barrier Island bird story. <laughs> oh, that was a good story. I think the the story that I've really liked doing is, is the Rose O'Kane one. That's been one that, that I've been tracking for a couple weeks. And, uh, you know, it's gotten me out in the field a lot, uh, talking to all kinds of different people from fishermen to politicians and, you know, just everybody seems to be concerned about that issue. And it's, it's been a good one to cover. So for our listeners who may not be familiar 
fully with what's going on. Um, can you give us kind of a summary of both what's happening in terms of the Rosicane and then also, you know, what's being done to address it, if anything, at this point? Yeah, so about, I think at the, the end of last year, uh, uh, an insect uh, kind of appeared on Rosicane in, in uh, Plaquemines Parish and uh, kind of around the Mississippi uh, Delta and uh, was killing the cane. And it was kind of a mystery. They didn't know what was causing it. And uh, when they brought it to the attention of the state and some scientists, they didn't know what it was. And so they spent a couple weeks just kind of figuring out what it was. And eventually they figured out that um, it was, this is the first appearance of this small kind of aphid-like insect. And it's uh, from Asia. And, um, you know, it's, it's just been eradicating huge amounts of rosacane, which is very important to uh, wetlands. It's, uh, it's very erosion resistant. So as the cane goes, so goes uh, these marshlands. And, you know, I, I remember my first reaction in reading that story of yours about it um, was, oh, gosh, here we go. Another reason that another thing that's attacking our coast. That's all we need. Right. Um, I mean, is it contained at this point or is it still? No, of, it's, yeah. it's it's still spreading. Um, so when I first started covering it a couple of weeks ago, it had gotten to about the middle of Plaquemines Parish. And uh, just recently they found it in uh, Grand Isle, um, I think, uh, uh, I think Jefferson Parish. It's now in there, um, not not to the degree it is in the in the mouth of the Mississippi, but it's definitely spreading. And the phase that that scientists are at right now is, you know, what do we do about it? And that's also kind of a big mystery. You know, they've kind of narrowed it down to three options: burning the marshes, uh, spraying pesticides, or introducing uh, the the insect's natural enemy, which is a parasitic wasp from Asia. So the challenge there would be how do you get that wasp to come over here and start killing the, the insect here? That's yeah, a, a challenge at a time when, you know, we don't really need any more challenges, right? Um, so as far as, you know, boaters or others who may be in contact with it, there are there some recommendations that they should follow? Yeah, they, they really want to contain the spread. And so they're asking boaters who uh, might come into contact with the cane to wash their boats and, uh, you know, not to, not to bring it anywhere else um, because there is also a concern that this insect may attack uh, some of the crops in the state, such as sorghum and sugarcane. Right. So very serious. And, I mean, we'll definitely be following you and your coverage of this to see how, you know, the story um, advances. Um, so shifting back to some of your previous reporting, I know when you were in Washington, you were covering, you were on the front lines covering wildfires um, and a really powerful multimedia piece called Call of the Wildfire. So um, tell us a little bit about that piece, but also how does covering um, kind of a, a really extensive, you know, um, disaster like that compare to, you know, where we are now, where it's a little bit of a slower, but no less severe and urgent um, crisis? Um, so that story was kind of an odd one in that I was I was fighting the fires as well as reporting on it. So that was kind of how I got access to the front lines. Um, I trained with a local fire department and uh, just mostly to get background in the issue of, of wildfires. And, uh, you know, and then the wildfire season came and they had a shortage of staff and they said, you know, you're trained in this. We'd like you to go do it. And I said, well, I would only do it as a reporter. And they said, why don't you do both? And uh, so that, that got me um, out there um, kind of serving dual roles, you know, like 
cutting fire lines as well as shooting photos and, and interviewing people. And uh, it was it was quite an experience. It was it was a bit terrifying and, and very interesting and uh, very long days, 14, 16 hour days. Um, so, yeah, it was quite an experience. Wow. Um, and, you know, in terms of, you know, your kind of being here, I know you've been doing a lot of pieces that are kind of explainer pieces, right? What is a sediment diversion? What is a freshwater diversion? What is dredging? A lot of these terms that the folks that are in the business or know about coastal issues um, use interchangeably, and we probably use them a lot on this show. Um, but tell us a little bit about some of those explainer pieces and the, the coastal glossary um, that you all are, have started and, and are updating. Yeah, it's, it's something that, you know, I think as you cover an issue, you, you might kind of gloss over certain terms or just use them very loosely and not really realize, you know, other people are not tracking this issue as closely as you are. So we wanted to kind of take a step back and sort of define these terms that we use so often. Um, and, you know, it's been, I think, helpful even for Sarah and I. These are new issues to us. You know, Washington State, we don't have sediment diversions. Um, we don't do a lot of dredging. So, you know, it was an education for us as well. Great. And folks can see um, the, the glossary and as it's updated on NOLA.com, is that correct? Yeah, we've got kind of like a, a list of them now on one page and we're going to kind of continue to update it as, as time goes on. Great. Well, I want to ask you as well, um, you know, you've been kind of in this role for several months now. Um, what has what have you found most surprising or what have you learned um, kind of that's really kind of stood out for you um, in your time reporting this beat? Um, I've, I've been pretty amazed at how um, there's the people understand the issue of coastal erosion of no matter where you go uh, from, you know, shrimpers and fishermen to uh, the politicians, everybody understands it's it's a huge issue. It's a crisis. Everybody can see the effects. Um, whereas in Washington State, I feel like um, you know the, the 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 issues, the environmental issues, are not so in your face. They're not so immediate. Um, they're not an immediate crisis. So it's a little bit more in theory, but here it's right in your face. You uh, had an opportunity to go up on a coastal flyover yesterday, um, and you know. Most people, you know, can't see that firsthand. They don't understand, you know, whether they're living behind levees or they just aren't able to see kind of from a bird's eye view what's going on. So what was that experience like for you? Um, it was great. I've, I've been down um, Plaquemines Parish a couple of times now. And from the road, it, you know, it appears very narrow and you don't know that there's much to it. But once you get in the air, you see this just huge fan of, of marshes and wetlands that, that fan out from it. And uh, so kind of the, the grandness of, of the land was, was really apparent in that flight. Great. Um, and we're about to head into a break, but I also want to ask you, you know, where can people follow you? What's your Twitter handle? Um, where can they find your reporting? All of that stuff. Uh, Twitter is uh, Tristan Bowrick, uh, T-R-I-S-T-A-N-B-A-U-R-I-C-K. And uh, stories are at NOLA.com. Great. Um, and so, you know, we are speaking with um, the New Orleans Times-Picayune um, coastal reporting team. Um, Sarah actually had to, to jut out to deal with a, a bike issue, but we were really grateful 
for her being on. Um, as a reminder, you can follow her at Sarah Sneath, S-N-E-A-T-H, uh, and keep um, uh, tabs of, on her reporting at NOLA.com. Um, after the break, we'll close out with, with Mark and Tristan and ask them some final questions. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. Hello, you're listening to Delta Dispatches. This is Jacques Hebert, and I'm back with our guests from the Times-Picayune, NOLA.com, Coastal Reporting Team. Um, as I mentioned before the break, uh, Sarah Sneath had to um, jut out, but you can be sure to follow her on Twitter at Sarah Sneath, S-E-S-N-E-A-T-H. Um, and I'm lucky to have uh, Mark Schlefstein and Tristan Barrick, who have stayed on for our last segment. So Mark and Tristan, I have to ask this question. Um, Simone and I like to keep it fun and she'd probably yell at me if I didn't ask a fun question. So um, I don't want to disappoint her or our listeners. So our fun question of the week is what is your favorite snowball flavor? I've, I've had one so far and it was at uh, Hanson's and it, it, I would say it's my favorite. It was really good. It was uh, chocolate and uh, condensed milk and the bananas Banana Foster. Wow. Yeah. That really sounds good. amazing. I, I'm old school. Dream sickle. <laughs> there you go. And, you know, snowballs are another key to surviving uh, the New Orleans summer. So I hope you you get to have a lot more, Tristan. Um, so this is, I guess, this is a question more for Tristan. But, I mean, Mark, please feel free to, to chime in as well. Um, as journalists who previously were working outside of Louisiana and you're now here covering the story, how do you think the story is being covered on a national level? I mean, are there certain misconceptions? Do you think the urgency and severity of our land loss crisis receives the attention that it deserves? So uh, I'm, I'm actually on the board of the Society of Environmental Journalists and uh, have been involved with them for, oh, 25 years uh, and 27 years. That's how long they've existed. Uh, it you know, it, it really is hard until you get down here and see what's going on to, to understand the, the reality of the land loss issue that we're facing and the risk. I mean, one of the, one of the things that has uh, increased awareness nationwide was uh, Hurricane Sandy, which did bring up close the same issues that we've been facing to New York City and New Jersey and uh, other other locations like that. So that that has sort of raised awareness. And then sea level rise also is becoming increasingly a problem that people are having to deal with. You know, when you're on Miami Beach and water is popping up from the sewers every, every other day because of high tides, uh, you, you start wondering what's going on. And, and that sort of helps uh, people understand what's happening over here as well. And I know, I mean, we we talk a lot about kind of the work that we're doing down here being a model for other places that are, you know, facing sea level rise, climate change, um, or will in the, the years ahead. I mean, do you see people, you know, across the country and across the globe looking to Louisiana and, and what we're doing here is something that they might need to implement at some point? Uh, yeah, I've, I've actually, you know, um, Post Katrina had the opportunity of speaking overseas in three different locations: uh, Monterey, Mexico, where I was on a panel with hurricane officials from uh, Cuba and other places in South America and Central America, uh, and that was a key issue. Uh, in Stockholm, uh, was able to talk with reporters from Europe about issues uh, involving climate change and how uh, Louisiana. 
what they were facing, uh, you know, how we were sort of uh, a uh, um, uh, canary in the, in, in the coal mine, so to speak. And also in Istanbul, uh, was able to, um, ha- had an audience with the patriarch of the Eastern Orthodox Church, who's known as uh, the Green Pope. Um, and he was he, he he was so interested in the issues involving um, uh, South Louisiana that he actually uh, brought his annual religion, science, and environment conference to New Orleans uh, back in uh, I think it was 2009 uh, to talk about uh, coastal erosion issues. So it it is an issue that's seen around the world. Uh, we're we're also seeing. Uh, similar sorts of things going on in uh, um, in areas like the Mekong Delta. Right. So there is, I mean, that spotlight in some ways on us and, and you know, how effective we're going to be at addressing this crisis. That brings me to another recently announced uh, exciting venture, which I know we can't go into in too great of detail, but you all posted um, kind of an article uh, just at least announcing it. So could you tell us a little bit about this partnership um, at le- in terms of what has been announced so far? Sure. Um, so uh, we're, we're, we're sort of in, a, in, in kind of a partnership with the, the New York Times to do uh, some reporting on coastal issues. And, the, and at the moment, that's, that's really basically where we are. We haven't really decided what it is we're going to be doing other than looking at the master plan and, and coastal issues that are important nationwide. And the New York Times... Uh, has felt that it needs to um, pair with local newspapers around the country to expand its reach and uh, to expand the ability of its readers around the nation to uh, to figure out about issues in, in other areas. And I mean, it was obviously a great announcement. We were excited to see, not just because of the national um, coverage that it has seen, but that they're looking to, you know, the, you, Mark, and um, your expertise and knowledge of this issue and reporting on it for so long, you know, as, as someone to, you know, work with here on the ground. Um, so we'll, we'll look forward to seeing and hearing more about that. But um, more broadly, I mean, I guess, do you see that as a model that can be used uh, in environmental journalism uh, more broadly? I guess partnerships and, and kind of particularly between no- national and local outlets. Uh, it, exactly. Um, you know, one of the things that the Society, of, uh, the Society of Environmental Journalists is trying to do is put together money uh, that can be used to help pay for uh, adding staffers to, to newspapers across the country. Uh, and providing focused uh, coverage on on individual issues, and uh, so that that is something you know, especially this kind of pairing that's going on, that we're hoping to see nationwide to occur. Um, uh, we need to basically mirror what the Associated Press does all across the country. Uh, they have a, a a great history of of dealing with. Uh, covering environmental issues across the nation and then providing that information to us or picking up local uh, reporting um, where their member stations are and member uh, newspapers are. And, you know, so many stories of a changing climate and sea level rise and, and an environment in flux are local, right? And so I'm curious, what advice would you give to journalists, regardless of whether they're, you know, local, national, TV, print, radio, um, on how to cover these stories? Talk to people who are looking in their backyards at what's happening to them is the first step. 
and then going to uh, the local universities and uh, the local agencies that are involved in dealing with uh, those kinds of issues. Uh, it's pretty easy to figure that out. Great. Um, and so one last time, um, can you uh, tell us where people can go to follow your reporting, follow your team's reporting, uh, Twitter handles, all of that? So uh, I'm Mark Schlefstein on Twitter, and um, the, uh, the the paper is NOLA.com, and the, and the shortcut is backslash environment. Great. And also, uh, thank you, Tristan, for being on. And one more time, uh, your Twitter handle. Uh, Twitter is Tristan Bowrick. Uh, T-R-I-S-T-A-N-B-A-U-R-I-C-K. Great. Well, I just want to thank so much um, Mark Slefstein, Tristan Barrick, and Sarah Sneath for taking the time out of their busy, uh, you know, uh, day and their reporting to come and, and be on the show. Talk about, you know, the expanded um, New Orleans uh, coastal partnership, um, coastal reporting team, as well as this exciting partnership that we hope to hear a little bit more about in the future. Um, thank you all so much. I hope it's been fun for you as well. Sure has. Thanks. Great. And, uh, you know, next week, I think, is National Infrastructure Week. So we're going to be talking about coastal restoration as infrastructure. We're going to have some experts on the show um, who are going to talk about some of the restoration projects that uh, the Coastal Protection Restoration Authority has teed up and, you know, how, you know, the governor and others are trying to um, position those projects as infrastructure. Um, hopefully I'll have my guest uh, or my co-host back, Simone Malaz, um, from Minnesota after a really successful trip. Um, for all of you who want to go online, you can go to MississippiRiverDelta.org slash Delta Dispatches to subscribe to the podcast, listen to past episodes, um, and make sure you get updates on new ones. Um, this has been Delta Dispatches, and this is Jacques Hebert. Thanks, and have a great week.